welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. I'm Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. I'm Maria Doulis from the CBC. Thanks for joining us here today. Just as a reminder, if you've missed any previous episodes, you've been away, on vacation, doing other things this summer, you can always catch up, obviously, through your favorite podcast stream, or we post all the episodes of What's the Data Point at Gotham Gazette and at the CBC website. And of course, both organizations are bringing you lots of other work, so you should check that out too. And please give us feedback. I'm on Twitter at TweetBenMax, Maria's at MariaDoulis, and of course, you can rate, subscribe, etc. on your favorite podcast platform. Okay, on to today's show. We are now post-summer, post-Labor Day, and getting into some great fall episodes of the podcast. And today, we're happy to be joined by Linda Gibbs, former Deputy Mayor for Health and Human Services under Michael Bloomberg and currently a principal at Bloomberg Associates, a philanthropic international consulting service. Welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. Hi, Ben. Hi, Maria. Hi. And before we get into our discussion with Linda, here's Maria with today's data point. Today's data point is $1 billion. Since Bloomberg Associates was launched in 2014, participating cities have invested more than $1 billion in initiatives supported or created by the philanthropic consultancy. This spending has been through reallocation of government funds based on advice from Bloomberg Associates leaders and staff. With Bloomberg Associates' help, partner cities have raised more than $115 million through public-private partnerships. So far, Bloomberg Associates has provided advice on more than 280 projects in 13 cities, including places like Detroit, Houston, London, Mexico City, and more. And here to talk to us about it is Linda Gibbs. So again, thanks for being here. We're, we're excited to, to really hear about this work you've been doing since the Bloomberg administration ended at the end of 2013. Uh, Maria gave us some top-line information. It's going to be great to hear about the specific work you're doing as part of Bloomberg Associates. Before we get into some of that, uh, just for listeners and, f- and for us to set the stage for the conversation, um, a little bit about your background before getting to this current work. Sure, thanks. I actually have um, been in New York City almost, uh, oh, oh my goodness, is it actually getting close to 40 years? And I spent um, my career from getting out of uh, law school in um, city government service in a whole bunch of different jobs. I worked for the city council. I worked for the Charter Revision Commission. I was actually a a deputy budget director. But for the last half of my career, I was in the health and human services, child welfare, homeless services, and then had the privilege in the last eight years um, to be the deputy mayor under Mike Bloomberg. And then when Mike left City Hall and we left with him, I was able to join him at Bloomberg Associates. So in terms of um, some of that work, and that's a, that's a good long run as a deputy mayor, by the way, I mean, that's, that's two, you know, two full terms, basically. Um, what are a few of the sort of top initiatives, programs that you're most proud of that you, you know, have maybe yeah. even carried forward as mm-hmm. you've gone into this work now. And it's really true. The, um, I, the, I have carried it forward, and it's been such a, a, a rich repository of knowledge that we've been able to share with other cities. You know, looking back at those eight years, I, th- and, um, I think some of the most challenging work in government is getting people to get outside their silos and to work collaboratively across programs, across agencies, across governmental jurisdictions. You've got all those different political dynamics going on, you know, you know, who ran against who, when, and how you can successfully connect at the professional level in government 
to achieve shared goals. And so some of the things that I think about in that regard that um, were my favorite that I worked on while I was um, at, at City Hall were um, our Young Men's Initiative, um, a cross-cutting strategy to tackle racial disparities in health, employment, education, justice. And, um, and it's fraught, right? I mean, tough issues people shy away from. You're uncomfortable, you don't know how to talk about it. And we were able to create an environment where a number of people who were really passionate about this issue were given a place at the table to identify strategies to reduce those racial disparities. And um, when we did this, it was um, both an investment of new dollars to support our strategies, so concrete things like justice reform, where we invested in home-based community services that created viable alternatives for young men that were getting caught up in the justice system so that the judges didn't have to send them into detention. They could safely return them home to their communities or to other safe spaces in the communities and produce much better life outcomes for them. So we saw through that a two-thirds reduction in the number of young men in the juvenile justice system. That's life-changing. And it makes me remember the way that we initiated that was a report coming out of the state that showed if you were a young man who served time, convicted of a crime, and served time, you had a 90% chance of being reincarcerated. So that's not rearrested or reconvicted. That's you go all the way through and you're reincarcerated. It's almost Incredible. like the, the death sentence, right? And so the justice, the, the kind of work that the Young Men's Initiative um, um, represents is, kind of, is really emblematic of that kind of cross-cutting effort. Another example is the work, you know, I'm a super data geek, so, you know, I'm kind of a good person to be on your show, I guess. Yeah, that's <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> and so um, a perennial challenge across cities is the fact that those silos are also places where people hoard their data. That's right. Right? And it's my data. And what do you want? What do you mean you want my data? Right. And what are you going to give me? And I know my it? data best, and you will not understand and you're my data. you're going to mess it up. If I right. share it with you, I just know you're going to mess it up. So it's really best that I kind of hang on to my data. And so we built um, two really significant initiatives um, during the time we were at City Hall. One is um, HHS Connect, which is an integrated data case management system. So frontline workers actually are able to see across agencies, of course, with the right confidentiality and security and provisioning, as they say, um, so that you only those with the legal right to see the information are able to see it. But it, it, was, it was like the, 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 the one thing that workers always said. I'm, I'm a juvenile detention, um, you know, I'm a um, guidance um, officer, but I don't know how my kid's doing in school. I don't know how, what's going on in the family. And so this comprehensive case record system allows each worker with those privileged rights to see the full, that's the full child, the full family. And it's just helping to both coordinate services and obviously offer the goal of producing better outcomes. The other initiative is the um, um, CIDI. And maybe sometime in your future, you should get Marianne Schretzman here to talk about it. Marianne is a, a, um, um, a brilliant public manager who has done great work, again, in integrating data. But this is um, um, work to look at it from a research perspective, to look at long-term trends at a population level information and understand the dynamics um, of, of 
what is, what is going on, it's also you know, frequently referred to as multi-system involved families. And so um, when it's not just one, and you know, when each one is, is of course unique, but there are trends. So when you look at the population um, at, at a, at the, at, at, in its entirety, you're looking for um, trends, like what are the positive outliers where things are going well, and what happened to produce those good outcomes? And then where are we seeing things either not improving or getting worse, and what are some of the contributing factors? So Marianne has done, um, working with colleagues across city government, um, done a number of really, um, it's really, it's cutting edge research on what's going on in, um, in, in the, these complex social services system. And so I just, I, I love the fact that we were able to do that. So one question about bringing agencies to the table and busting through the silos. So what kind of feedback loop do you see after that? You know, people may be hesitant initially, but once you say get the mission aligned and everybody can see how they fit in, right? Now, you know, all these agencies become stakeholders. They start to look at things together. Mm -hmm. And so then does that, and, and once you have data, of course, mm -hmm. that you're monitoring and you see, well, yes, this is actually making some difference, does it then generate greater feedback loop where now these people are working together more consistently on other topics? Now, it sounds like you know what you're talking about. <laughs> that's Because that's exactly what happens. And to me, it's so exciting to see how the, how the data can contribute to that. And so when I think about our juvenile justice reform, right, we have... Uh, somebody from the court system, from somebody from the prosecutor's office, somebody from juvenile probation, somebody from juvenile detention. And they all come to the table, they all have their own data, and none of it talks to each other. And we're like, come on, guys, this is a system. We are all working together. These kids are moving from handoff to handoff. And so we, if we can't understand how they, are, how, how they are moving through our systems by having our data talk to each other, how can we fix anything? And so the, it actually took us almost a year to get each of the agency's data to kind of normalize it so that it talked to each other and that it has a consistent flow of information. So the thing, as that was going on, we also had a, a lot of people, I wish, you know, we're on, you know, we're on a podcast so you can't see me like sit back and cross <laughs> my arms across my chest and say, yeah, I'm here because my boss told me I had to come and I don't really want to be here and I'll be here as long as, you know, you have the energy to keep up these meetings and then I'm going back to my corner. And, um, and we went from that kind of attitude in some cases, some people, you know, leading and of course being very passionate, but then through, both through the, the discussion of the data and, um, and people, you know, in, in one sense, you know, first getting kind of intellectually engaged in it, but then through more and more face-to-face -face contact and struggling through the issues and not letting people sort of walk away, but really trying to identify the commonly shared goals that they are, that they do hold um, um, together as one, like they and and more conversations help them to realize that they share objectives, and then having the data inform them about how to get there. And by the end of the process, we had people who really were there almost against their will, being the ones who were like, "When's the next meeting? Come on, you know, you know, we postponed last week. We can't do that. I need to get an issue resolved." Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of um, collective effort that it takes sometimes to move these really complex systemic challenges. I'm glad you gave those insights to people because the more folks that I talk to in government to really talk about how it works, the two things that you just hit on are essential that 
that don't really come across in news articles and coverage and the mayor's press conferences and announcements and things like that, which are, will people share data with each other and how well do they do that? And then what happens when they're actually willing to share? And two, how people approach those types of meetings and that type of collaboration. And you would think, I think people on the outside would sort of think, oh yeah, you know, they're all on the same team, they're working together, they come... But that, what you said is exactly what happens inside government, which is people come to meetings upset they have to be there, even though they know it's a directive from the mayor or the deputy mayor, mm-hmm. and they don't necessarily participate until, as a leader, the, you get the buy-in and you get people moving. And it's amazing uh, you know, how that can change yeah. the function. And that's not just mm-hmm. government, obviously. That applies everywhere. Right. So part of that is like the common notion of a bureaucracy in some ways, though we tend to forget that people in these so-called bureaucracies are actually very motivated by the mission of that organization, right? And so they perceive that and their ability to execute that a little bit differently, perhaps than, you know, their boss or the public or another agency who has a view of what they should be doing. But just to sort of cap this discussion, right, another part where... um, you know, I sat on a, a task force to reform the mayor's management report a couple of years ago. So sexy. Yeah, <laughs> for me it was fantastic, right? But, you know, eventually, so, you know, a few representatives from the agencies who were their data managers were very candid in saying, look, we manage our agency internally with data. We kind of have our dashboards, we meet on it, we're very data-focused and centric, and that's how we run we are very skeptical about releasing the data publicly because essentially we won't, don't want to be pummeled for things in the public or by city council members or members of the press that we don't have direct control of or that are essentially intermediate outcomes mm-hmm. um, that don't reflect sort of the larger work that we're doing. Yes. Um, and it's a serious challenge. And when someone like you know me can't really... Mm-hmm, soothe, mm-hmm. right? Yep, I, so yep, I could yep. say, well, you should do it anyway. Mm-hmm, <laughs> and right. Take mm-hmm. the leap and, and yeah. Yeah, this is a this is a huge cultural um, barrier, and when I think of the culture of data, and we're all right, I'm not I'm not so old, right? I'm old, but I'm not so old. When I started in government, there was no such thing as um, as I mean, we barely had desktop computers, right? And um, and there and there weren't the kind of data systems we have. We have to just remember that it's been really fast for these data systems to that which have now proliferated. And um, the way they've grown is basically um, been if the if you're at an agency and you're lucky to have a really data savvy young person, they come in and they start doing Excel spreadsheets, and then they actually understand beyond that, you know, um, how to move to electronic case management systems that has to that start collecting facts and figures, and then they figure out oh you can actually extract this data from our case management systems. But it's been kind of um, from from the, the from the local system up. There, and so that has created, and of course with this really critical overlay of privacy. And so I think the history of the way that data has grown in the public sector has been um, that the custodians of the data at the local level, um, both are the ones who are the, the front line of defense as it relates to protecting privacy, and so they really are cautious about that. and. Um, and they also know all of the, you know, the, the faults and failures of the agency, and they don't want to wind up inadvertently or intentionally exposing the problems. And of course, the instinct is, oh my God, you know, this is going bad. Let me fix it before anybody sees what's happening, right? And you, you want that time to catch up. 
what I think we need to do is to shift to a culture where data is understood to be a public good, that, um, that we need to respect privacy, and technology and legal agreements can do that, and it's well known how to do that. But the culture and the belief in data needs to shift from one of it's my data to it's the public's data. And I think public leaders have to be more um, 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 savvy in how to use data to their advantage as a tool in assisting their goals and the reforms. You know, if somebody is a, a you know just a lousy public leader and they're you know and they don't really want to improve things and they're just into making themselves look good, that's you know well then you just have a bad leader, right? But mo that's just that doesn't describe most or the majority or you know I can't think of one person like that. Well, maybe I can, but, um, <laughs> but we won't ask for names. <laughs> yeah, don't, let's not go there. Um, for the most part, leaders are in those agencies because they care deeply about the mission and they want to effectuate true reform. And using data, including the data that says what's not good, and, and engaging the public in using your data by making it public um, is the kind of culture shift that leaders are starting um, to take. So, so yeah. all of this applies, obviously, to the work you did in the Bloomberg administration and the work you're doing now at Bloomberg Associates because you're working with cities all over the world on a lot of this. And, and so let's transition a little bit more directly into talking about that work. But as we do that, as you try to push this culture change in the work you're doing, advising other mayors and cities around the, the globe, is it possible to get that type of change in the middle of an administration, or does it almost always take, you know, sort of somebody coming in new and fresh and being, you know, willing to be the new mayor who's who's willing to put that data out there, take those risks? You know, is it about that type of leadership, or, you know, how or how do you convince somebody who's midstream, who's who recognizes they're bringing you in, they recognize your expertise, but they have to be willing to take more risks? Yes, and it runs the full gamut. Um, of course, new leaders are, um, create great opportunities. They're eager. They have an agenda that they ran on. They're, you know, now they're so excited about being able to be in charge of their government and their agencies, and, and they want to get things done. And so they're, they're, they're just searching around and gobbling up um, strategies. On the other hand, even for people who have been, maybe it's a second term they're elected to, or they're midway through a term and they have an existing um, leader, and this is both for mayors and for secretaries of, of agencies, directors of programs, they, they sit and they, they, they're frustrated by these, these issues about like knowledge of what, do, um, you know, what is going on, how come I can't get access to my, um, to my data? How come I have all this data, but it's, but it's not being presented to me in a timely format and a usable form so that it's actionable? And so people um, are generally very, very interested, regardless of where they sit on the, on the trajectory. Um, there are so many barriers, and, it's, um, and this is one reflection that I have now from having worked in several cities in Europe, across the United States, South America, um, New York City is, is really a unique global city. The size of the city's government, its budget, its workforce, the sophistication of um, the, you know, everybody from the, the frontline workers all the way up to the top management, and um, the richness and sophisticated, uh, sophistication of our data 
um, is just unparalleled. I haven't, I haven't seen anybody that has that um, equivalent um, um, breadth and depth. At the same time, in some ways, um, you know how you know like the, the, those scrappy little fighters sometimes can like do the most amazing things. We do find pockets of um, incredible innovation. So in Bogota, in Colombia, their comprehensive case management system for people who are street homeless is amazing. It's it's just phenomenal. Well, so what's and amazing about it? It um, <clears throat> it crosses multiple multiple services. And so you have um, from the community-based provider to the behavioral health, mental health substance abuse treatment providers, shelter providers, outreach workers, housing assistants, they all share the same case record of that client. And you can talk to anybody who's on the street or in the homeless system, and they will tell you how frustrated, this is internationally, they will tell you how frustrated they are that they have to keep repeating submission of documentation. They lose all their information. They, you know, they go through one treatment program and somebody says, okay, you're clean, you can go. And the next one says, well, no, you don't quite qualify. You have to do this now. And the frustration about those gaps and, and the lack of flow is a huge impediment and perpetuates homelessness. In Bogota, their comprehensive system allows them to minimize those handoffs. It doesn't, I don't want to pretend it makes the world perfect, but it is a, um, uh, it is a tool that helps them to achieve their objective of that more um, seamless and expedited care to overcome homelessness. And so that's an example. Now in other cities, you know, you, there's, there's more and more of um, um, an appreciation of the value of data, but you just don't have the same um, um, richness and access and dollars to appropriately extract data um, for to take it out of um, the frontline service delivery up to actionable knowledge. Mm -hmm. and, um, and that's a really, um, um, that's something that people are very eager to do. So a really concrete example of where we're trying to address that is our work on My Brother's Keeper. In, um, since um, Bloomberg Associates was founded and when President Obama was in the White House, he created this initiative calling on mayors across the country to adopt um, local strategies to overcome racial inequities in their cities, and called out the Young Men's Initiative in New York City as a sample example of doing that. And so we jumped on it. This was, this was um, fantastic to us. And uh, with, uh, with two of my colleagues, we've been working in about two dozen cities in the US helping mayors who took the challenge. About 250 mayors nationally took the challenge. We looked for um, places where we thought that there was um, the right set of circumstances and the right you know, leadership, um, breadth of effort, willingness to really tackle the hard challenges, and have worked in about um, two dozen places. Um, in, um, in Houston, Texas, we are in the middle right now of trying to do this kind of um, real-time data sharing. On, um, on racial disparities across the school system, the city, and the county, and pull that all together into a platform to help to, for them to work to advance their efforts um, in, in Houston. And, um, and it's hard. I mean, this work, it, it's you know, the trust issues. It's, it all comes down to trust, because the technology is there, the, the legal um, guidance is there, um, the technology is incredible 
incredibly cheap as well. So not only is the security more sophisticated, but the cost is much lower. Like I can't even tell you how much lower by the you know the magnitudes of hundreds, like yeah. not right, like yeah. you know half the cost. It's like one gazillionth of the cost. And so the reasons for not doing this are disappearing, um, but the barrier is always going to remain trust. And that's the other really critical thing about um, cities and other you know places that we're learning, which is that you know New York City because we're a city and a county, well five counties. We have and a school district and a school district. Mm. Um, having that all under mayoral control is a huge. Um, it, it's, it's, a, it's a it's a huge portfolio, but it's it gives such great advantages because you don't have to negotiate as many different um, political and jurisdictional bureaucratic fault lines um, in places. So Houston is a great example, and Mayor Turner is doing a fantastic job in Houston, and his leadership of the My Brother's Keeper work um, is is really very trusted across all the the, the separate independent school district. Um, Harris County leadership um, does all of the social services and justice work. So there's, a, and of course, it's not just the county judge who is the administrative director of the county, but an independent district attorney and an independent sheriff. So getting that same expanse of data together involves just, you know, um, successfully bringing all those different parties to the table. And that's a, that's a much bigger challenge than in New York where you know, you, you didn't have the political and jurisdictional, you just had, you know, those egos to deal with. <laughs> right. And maybe well. some home rule issues from time to time yeah, in right. terms of Albany, right? The state. No, yeah. that, that's right, right, very, right. you know, it's interesting to hear you say that because often, you know, one of the sort of lines of analysis that we do here at CBC typically is to say, well, okay, you know, we figured out the fully loaded costs, how much it costs to, preserve, you know, provide a service, say sanitation. And then we do our best to compare to other cities and we, you know, standardize where we can and make whatever adjustments we can to say, okay, we're pretty confident these numbers are as good as you can get and look, New York City is so much more expensive. And commonly we hear from agencies, well, you can't compare New York City to other places. It's just so much harder here because of the size and the scale and, 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 and. But what I hear from you is actually there are institutional parts of this that make it easier for New York City to do some of this. Oh my goodness, yes. <laughs> I, I keep saying like if I own knew how good we had it when uh, I was there I would have like rested so much easier every night yes it's huge and the stakes are super high mm -hmm. um, but it is the, these things we the so in with Bloomberg Associates um, and you know we were in cities that are much larger than New York City population wise but mostly much smaller regardless of city size mayor's offices are um, chronically understaffed um, they are, they can't do things because they simply don't have a person funded to be able to take on the task. They, um, and then it's really interesting because jurisdictionally it's very different um, in a lot of places. So in European cities, they have independently elected deputy mayors. And so the mayor's administration is drawn from council members elected from their districts and you only can appoint deputy mayors from the ranks of the city council. And so, and if you're doing, and it's very, you know, quasi-parliamentary in that if you have a coalition government, you're often picking people who are from outside your own party. You know, you got to keep the team together. 
And so the sort of um, navigating those relationships makes the mayors not quite as strong as when you're appointing, you know, an independent person, you know, who, who is, you know, at, at will to, and, your, and your discretion to hire and fire as you want. And then in other places, and this is more true in the United States, where you have um, either um, city administrator forms of government, where the mayor is the political arm, and then there's a professional government reporting to the city administrator. And on top of that, and this is, I think what the relationship is, is if the city government has a strong relationship to the graduate schools of public policy and public administration, that you're able to recruit into the top ranks of your agencies um, people who are trained for government management in particular, and that's just not true in a lot of places. Either um, Mexico City is, um, I, I love it, but the way that they treat their agencies, the way, I don't know how this culture grew up, but a secretary travels with her team. And so if a secretary changes, basically her team that is the entire top management of the agency leaves with her. And the new team comes in, and they're whatever skills. So if an engineer is brought in, you suddenly have you know, a bunch of you know, civil engineers running the social services agency. And so there's, New York City, I think, is, is really quite unique in the um, exceptional professionalism um, up and down the ranks of city government. And so it's hard. I don't, you know, it's easy. Look at them six years away from the work. So suddenly, oh, it was so easy. <laughs> you know, we were, we were so great. We had everything. But mm -hmm. I just think it's good to, on reflection now, to think about um, the incredible tools that the New York City government has. Um, and it makes us a leader internationally on so many fronts and so many domains. Transportation, so, you know, government integrity, um, you, know, ev you know, the whole range of incredible areas of expertise. So we're in our last few minutes here with Linda Gibbs, who is a leading uh, an area of her expertise in terms of health and human services and social services for Bloomberg Associates, former deputy mayor for two terms under Mayor Michael Bloomberg. Um, so just last couple of questions, uh, and thank you for the time. Um, I guess I'm wondering just a little bit if you um, can actually zoom us back out. How does Bloomberg Associates get brought in and, mm -hmm. and, you know, sort of what's your, I mean, you indicated a little bit in some comments about a little bit of what you look for in partners, but, um, you know, give us that broad, you know, we, we jumped right into yeah. the data sharing mm -hmm. and the, you know, yeah. how to get stakeholders to buy in, but just a little bit of that. Um, Roll back up to yeah, the top. A little, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, um, so we're small. We're, um, we have eight principles. It's a nonprofit pro bono consulting group that we work exclusively for mayors. We don't work for any nonprofits. We don't work for the private sector. You know, we, we're, we don't work for any other level of government. It's, it's really, and I, <clears throat> and I really, I would say that another interesting reflection as, um, as we've had the privilege of doing this work internationally is it really reinforces in my mind the importance of mayors for where we are now globally in terms of you know socioeconomic situations and politics, you know we it is the unfortunate circumstance that there is um, an increasing divide at the national level between the right and the left, and um, and I see over and over again that that just does not play out in municipalities. Mayors on the are on the front line of getting things done and need to be accountable to everybody in their cities and continue to reflect. The kind of um, kind of compassionate pragmatism um, of the need to manage your city 
and to, um, to satisfy the, the competing demands, and you just can't be for one or the other. It's, it's almost, you know, I understand that mayors run on the Democratic, Republican, Socialist, wherever you are in, in the world, whatever your party is, but once they get into office, they really just have to be, you know, pragmatic, and that puts them in the middle, and it makes them almost transcend these terrible divides that we see. It's happening in Europe, it's happening in South America, it's happening, of course, across the U.S. And so um, the way that Bloomberg Associates gets involved in cities, it's really a few different routes. Um, on the one hand, aggressive um, new mayors will just come knocking on our door. And, um, and there's many more knocks than we can take. And every once in a while, the, the time and the situation works. And we're like, wow, like, yeah, I have time on my calendar. And she was really impressive. And she looks like a mayor who's going to make big things happen. And our work will make a difference. In other cases, um, we see, okay, and you know, um, and you know, halfway through next year, we're probably going to be ending a few engagements, and we start some research, and we look at things like, you know, what is the um, the electoral term? Where, you know, where will we see new mayors? That we want the cities to be pretty sizable. You know, the half a million, you know, uh, pr would be sort of a sweet spot. Much under that, we is, um, you know, because the work is just as hard regardless of the size of the city. The same for you know, twenty thousand and you know, three million. And so, you know, you want to think about your impact. So we look for, um, for, for solid-sized cities and up. And I think for the, the, we look for um, the right circumstances. Um, you know, we want to know that it's not just a really um, competent mayor with some um, big challenges to tackle, um, but that the agenda is one that aligns with the expertise of, of the principles in our practice. You know, um, you know, Rose Gilhern um, doing municipal integrity, Jeanette Sadek Khan, and Kate Levin on arts and culture, um, but she's done tremendous work on public-private partnerships as well. Catherine Oliver and um, on um, media and digital affairs, Adam Freed for sustainability, um, Amanda Burden, city planning. Um, I know I'm going to forget somebody. No, I better not. You know. <laughs> George Fertitta, who is our CEO and also does um, communications and, and tourism and marketing. Um, <clears throat> just an amazing group of people with tremendous expertise, but we don't have all expertise. We don't have an education expert. We don't have a policing expert, right? And so it has to, the mayor's top agenda has to align with our expertise as well. And, um, and, and we try also to be geographically diverse. Um, you know, thus far we have not um, worked anywhere in Asia or Africa, and I hope that that is in our, in our future. Um, but we have worked across the United States um, and South America and, um, and Europe. And my, you know, and it's interesting, it's like, what does, you know, what do, what do Paris, and, you know, really need, you know, with a, but our work in Paris has been focused very much on integrating the immigrant communities more in successfully into the mainstream of, um, of French society and overcoming um, a lot of the cultural barriers that has, um, that has excluded them. And so um, these are things for, you know, that, that we are quite um, well-versed in in the U.S. And we have our challenges, but we have um, a better set of, um, you know, we have the language and some of the tools now that we are starting to employ. And so introducing these um, tools to, um, to European cities where the anti-immigrant um, 
urge is just, in, uh, you know, it's kind of rapidly increasing, it feels critically important to us to be able to bring that kind of skill to those partners. Is, your, is the work in international cities different from work in domestic cities um, due to the sort of the, you know, the, the federal system in, in the U.S. is very unique, right? And a lot of funding from education, infrastructure, these sort of big areas and other places actually comes from the central federal national government, right, like in Europe. So does, how does that affect your work? Big time. Yeah. Yes. So great example. Um, in Milan, we're working with uh, Mayor Sala there, and one of his goals, he really is fighting against um, this, you know, the, the, the push from the right against um, the immigrants. And he um, wants to understand um, what is causing some of the segregation in their communities and in their schools. And so looking at the schools um, and researching best practices around what have been successful strategies around increasing diversity in the schools, so relevant to what's being discussed in, in New York City um, with the new chancellor, we you know say okay here here are here are the successful strategies around how to increase the comfort of families um, and in, on both sort of the immigrant side and on the native population and here are ways that have um, have kind of, you know uh, successfully overcome um, differences to improve integration and then you look at it and three quarters of that list are things that are not under the mayor's control because the national government sets the curriculum, hires the principals, hires the teachers. But it's kind of crazy to us, but the mayor manages the school buildings, is responsible for the um, after school programs. And so it's a and so it's a funny it's a funny mix. And you realize that the challenge for mayors, and this is where I think another thing, a big lesson, is that mayors are the master collaborators. Because you're, you're, you're where, you know, sort of the, the rubber hits the road and you have to make things happen for your citizens and people hold you accountable in the same way, you know, it's like mayors really do have to figure out how to bring all of those partners successfully to the table for those frontline solutions. And they wind up, because of that necessity, being just incredible examples of, uh, of making solid collaboration. Okay, we are going to have to leave it there, but uh, we could probably talk for hours longer. But Linda Gibbs from Bloomberg Associates, thank you so much for the time and for joining us. It's been a lot of fun. Bye. Bye.